0: We're going to be continuing our series in Acts this morning, and we are going to be in Acts chapter 7, verses 44 through 53. And before we begin, let's go to the Lord in prayer, asking him him to bless us. Uh, Father, you have unlimited power. You have unlimited knowledge. You are everywhere at once, and yet... You've chosen to dwell inside our hearts. Uh, Your son purchased that blessing for us. And so, Lord, help us to be thankful for Jesus who represents us before you. And he's purchased that with his own blood. And, Father, we're grateful for him. Help us to be grateful. I pray this in your son's name. Amen. All right, so sometimes uh, we get asked... Me, Ben, and, and some of the other staff. What's the hardest part about doing ministry in Greenville, North Carolina? And I've been doing ministry here since 2007. That's when I met Ben. And I'd have to say, our answer is the same pretty much every time. It's probably the transient nature of the city. It's very transient. People just come and go. Uh, Greenville is not a city that people tend to stick it out. For the rest of their lives, especially in my circles, I know a lot of college students, I was a college student, and uh, people come they, and they leave for understandable reasons, Mo- most of the time it's a career or it's a relationship or something like that, and so uh, in ministry you make friends, you make a lot of enemies too, uh, but uh, I've had over the years to had to say goodbye to many, many people, many good friends, close friends. Uh, even best friends. And so it's it's pretty tough. It's pretty tough doing ministry here for that reason. And after your friends leave, and I think this is something that we can all relate to, but after your friends leave, it's never really quite the same. It's hard to uh, stay connected, especially if you're someone like me that's not really good at long distance uh, style relationships. But that's why the truths that we learned this morning, I think, are very comforting. I've had to, I've had to be grounded in this type of understanding to to stay uh, joyful in the Lord, and it's very comforting. Um, The truth is that God is always present with us. Even if our friends leave, come and go, and there's changes in relationships, He's always there. and So no matter what, God is with us and He never leaves us. In fact, Scripture says, Scripture takes us even further. He's not just present with us, He actually dwells inside of us. And so here's the big idea this morning. If you are a believer in Christ, God's spirit dwells within you. If you're a believer in Christ, God's spirit dwells within you. For the last few weeks, uh, we've been studying uh, this character named Stephen, and we were introduced to him in chapter 6 of the book of Acts. And in there, in chapter 6, we see this man, and he comes on the scene, and he's, he's a man that Luke describes as full of grace and biblical wisdom. And he's preaching, and he's doing ministry in Jerusalem. And his preaching creates enemies. A lot of people don't like the things that he has to say. And so a group of men sees him, and they bring him before the Jewish leadership. This is another name for the Jewish leadership, was the Sanhedrin. This was the same group of men that sent Jesus to the cross. What these group of men do is they falsely accuse him of being against Moses, of being against God, of being against the law, and of being against the temple. Ultimately, Stephen was accused of being against Judaism, and he's standing here before the court, and if he is to be found guilty, this almost certainly means certain death for Stephen. To put this in perspective, imagine you're standing before uh, the Supreme Court of the United States, and you're being charged with treason. Treason. Uh, that's the type of position he's in. And so what Stephen does all throughout chapter 7 is he boldly addresses each of these topics, Moses, God, and the law. And he's already addressed that, Moses, God, and law. And now in our section, what he does is is he turns his attention to the temple. Beautiful, magnificent building in the center of Jerusalem. It was the center of Jewish worship. And so we see this accusation in chapter 6, verse 14. These men say about Stephen, For we have heard him, Stephen, say that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place, the temple, and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. So up to this point, his entire speech in chapter 7, has been making them extremely angry. But when he gets to this topic, when he gets to the temple, this is where they end up going absolutely insane with rage. So let's look at Acts chapter 7, verse 44, and see how Stephen responds to this accusation. Verse 44. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen so stephen begins his answer by bringing up the story of the uh, tent of witness and the tent of witness is the same thing as the tabernacle you may have heard of it if you're familiar at all with the old testament if you've scanned through it if you've read it you may be familiar with the israel israel's tabernacle Uh, What was the tabernacle, if you haven't heard of it? uh, The word tabernacle in Hebrew actually means dwelling place. So it was a portable building. It was a tent. Kind of reminds me of our days at Integrity when we had the white trailer going around from location to location. I call those like the tabernacle days because we weren't like more permanent like this. Uh, It was a portable tent, and it was the center of worship for Israel. Priests would go uh, and make sacrifices there. The bread of the presence, some of these terms may be familiar. Uh, The continually burning lampstand, the offering of incense. All of these things happened at the tabernacle. And once a year, uh, Israel's high priest, top of the chain, high priest, highest priest there was, he would enter the Holy of Holies, which was in the middle of the tabernacle. So he'd go inside. He was only able to do it once a year. And he would go in there. He had to make sacrifices before he went in there. And he had to go through a long process to be able to cleanse himself before, before going in there. And he would go in the center where God dwelt inside with the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant, if you've seen Indiana Jones. You've seen that Ark. <laughs> not, that's not the actual one, but it's sort of similar. <laughs> and inside that Ark was the Ten Commandments. It was, which represented God's law, which got, represented God's uh, covenant relationship that he had with his people. And so, uh, Israel, people Israel. And so you, uh, you would not enter this. Not, not, not everyone entered this. It was only the high priest. And you could not enter without sacrifices being made. And so the important thing about this, about the tabernacle, what Stephen is, and the point that Stephen is trying to make is he's saying the tabernacle was God's idea. The tabernacle was God's idea. And that's going to be important to remember as we move on through Stephen's argument. And so God, it was God who gave uh, Moses instructions on how to build it. Let's, Let's continue with verses 45 through 47. Verse 45. Our fathers in turn brought it the tabernacle, in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So so it was until the days of David who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. So the story goes like this. After God saved Israel from Egypt brought them out of their captivity. They wandered the wilderness for 40 years. So they take the tabernacle with them place to place. And when they finally conquer the land, Israel, the land of Israel that God gave them, uh, they continued to use this tabernacle up until the days of David. So when David becomes king, after Saul, he lives, he builds for himself. He lives in this magnificent castle. It was a beautiful castle built for a king like David. And David grew discontent because here he is living in a castle. Uh, and, and God, he, in his mind, God is dwelling in this tent. Uh, so it's like we're here, but still over. God's still in, at Walcoats Elementary. I don't know if, if you guys were still. Some of you guys went there. And so he was not happy that his house was nicer than the Lord's. And so David goes to Nathan, a very prominent prophet during that time, and he, he, he comes with the idea, Nathan, I want to build God a temple. And God tells Nathan that it's going to be okay if David decides to build a temple. But uh, David's son is going to do it, not David, because David was a man of war, he had shed blood, he would killed many, many people. God wanted David's son, who's Solomon, to build the temple. And so when Solomon became king, he built the temple, and it was this magnificent facility modeled after the tabernacle. So you may be wondering why this is such a big deal. Uh, It's a big deal because these men that Stephen is talking to, Israel as a whole at this time, they idolized the temple. Uh, Stephen is not saying necessarily that the temple was bad. God did approve of its construction. But what he is doing is he's minimizing its importance. Stephen is reminding them, uh, Stephen is saying, listen guys, the, the temple was not even God's idea. That was David's idea. God's idea was the tabernacle. David changed it. And so now that Christ has come, things have changed again. Why should you be surprised if we, if we examine our history, why would you be surprised if the temple of God changes again? So he's telling them, guys, the tabernacle and the temple, these were just temporary things. This is a temporary location where God revealed himself. In the Old Testament era, God reveals spiritual truths about himself through the design and function of the tabernacle and its contents. But now that Jesus has come, he's changed everything the tabernacle and the temple were only pictures of what was to come they only pointed towards they didn't know it was jesus at the point at that point but it pointed towards jesus and the writer of hebrews very clearly tells us this let's look at hebrews chapter 9 verses 1 through 2 hebrews chapter 9 verses 1 through 2 The writer of Hebrews says in chapter 9, Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of worship. He's talking about the temple. And an earthly, or the tabernacle. And an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of presence. The bread of presence right there in the tent kind of represents the presence of God. Okay? Okay. Let's skip down to chapter 9, verses 11 to 12. So we have Old Covenant. Now we come. Now Christ has come. Now things change. Verse 9, to 12. Chapter 9, verses 11 to 12. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all, Into the holy places, not by means of blood of the goats and the calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. And then finally, chapter 9, verse 24. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf His people so the tabernacle was a copy it was a picture it represented heaven it represented God's presence and God is absolutely holy Uh, he is good he is so good it, it defies our ability to even understand it how white hot Holy God is. And so we cannot enter his presence with sin. And this truth defies imagination. All we have are these words that the writer of Hebrews gives us. But Christ entered into God's presence by his own blood. He took on our sin and died. Became the sacrifice. Entered into God's presence to represent us before the Father so that our sins could be forgiven. He shed his blood for our forgiveness. And now, because Jesus has secured for us eternal redemption, we as individuals and as a community are the dwelling place of God. Let me repeat that. We as individuals and as a community are now the dwelling place of God. The tabernacle and temple only function as pictures. And in fact, the Apostle Paul calls us, believers, temples of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 through 20 says this. This is Paul speaking. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body, and understanding this truth makes Stephen's next point even more amazing. Uh, let's look at verses forty-eight through fifty, and he's quoting the prophet Isaiah here, and he says this: "Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me?" says the Lord or what is the place of my rest did not my hands make all these things so what Stephen is doing he's he's reminding them about the eternal unlimited uh, power of God, God is unlimited Uh, nothing can stop him from doing what he wants to do, Uh, God is present everywhere at once, God is omnipresent God possesses all knowledge. There is nothing hidden from God. God is light. God is too big to be contained in a building like the temple, which is what these men believed. And you're, you're, you're putting God, you're, you're trying to contain him in this temple, and he's, he's simply too big for that. But in some way, and this is beyond our comprehension, the eternal, powerful God dwells inside the hearts of individual believers and so Stephen is telling the Sanhedrin that the temple is no longer necessary because of Jesus it's not a bad thing to have around I guess but its job is done I mean this is like telling people that the USA is not the greatest country on earth that'll make people mad um Now, I've done a lot of speaking over the years, not as much as Ben, but every now and then I get up here, and uh, I can normally tell when a crowd is done with me. (laughs) I mean, you don't need to yell at me, you don't need to say anything, actually, you don't need to yell at me, Uh, you don't need to lunge at me, you don't need to throw tomatoes at me. Uh, I can tell normally based on verbal cues and, and body language, facial expressions and the stares, And I just know, okay, it's time to land this plane and get out of here. (laughs) And so, after Stephen makes this point, things change out of nowhere. And I think he senses that they have had enough of him. They are not going to accept what he is saying. They are rejecting his message. And so, things take a dramatic shift, and this is what he says in verse 51. You... You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit, as your fathers did, did, so do you. If you look at verse 44, and all throughout chapter 7, Stephen has always said, our fathers, brothers, our ancestors. Not anymore. It's no longer our fathers, it's it's your fathers. It's no longer us. It's you. He's, he's disconnecting from them. He's no longer trying to connect with them. Now he's actually disconnecting from them. And with verse 51, he's basically calling the Jewish leaders disobedient, Gentile, enemies of God. And what he says here is enough for them to absolutely go crazy. And so he's calling these men who are at the top of the Israelite leadership. He's calling them Gentiles. He's, he's, he's saying, you guys are not real Jews. In fact, you're enemies of God. Let's see what he says next. Verse 52. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute, uh, persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. Verse 53. You who received the law was delivered by angels and did not keep it. Stephen is saying, God gave you the law. God God gave you the law. He gave you everything you needed to know. The law and the prophets and all of the Old Testament, the tabernacle, everything, you, you missed it. It all pointed to Jesus. It all pointed to God's grace and a coming Savior, and you missed it. Your ancestors killed all of the prophets that came to tell you about Christ. And then when Christ finally came, you killed him too. So he's calling them basically heretics that have missed out on the grace of God. And so this basically sums up Israel's rejection of Christ. They missed it, and they missed God's grace. And this is where the speech ends. It ends very abruptly here, and they kill him for this. He goes down in a vicious uh, but victorious way. And he dies a beautiful death. And so next week, uh, David Keogh, he's going to talk about that. Uh, But for the believer this morning, uh, when you turned from sin and you trusted in Christ, uh, the Holy Spirit came into your life to to live inside you, came inside me. He he turned us from God-haters to God-lovers. And that's an amazing thought. And so the God who was before the beginning, who, who sustains and holds everything together, who, who is just too big to be contained in a building, actually now lives inside of us. He lives inside of you. And he is here to guide us and to point us to Christ. And he reminds us that we are now members of God's family in the hands of a loving all-powerful God who wants the best for us. The instruments that the Spirit uses to direct us towards Christ are God's Word and fellow believers, us as a community. Spending time together, reading His Word, we, we are together pointed to Christ, and the Spirit is making all of that happen. And so don't neglect or ignore the treasure of God's Spirit dwelling inside you. So Jesus Christ has has purchased this. He's bought this with his own blood. If you're not a Christian, it's important to remember that you cannot, no no matter where you go, you cannot escape God's presence. He is present everywhere at all times. And this is a terrifying thing to realize uh, when you take into account the Bible's teaching on God's holiness. You cannot escape him. And he's good. He sees all of your sin. And God is perfect. And he requires perfect obedience from you all the time. It only took one sin for God to damn all humanity to hell. So ask yourself this question. Have you, have you loved God with all of your heart with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength, perfectly every day of your life. And you may say, of course I have. Not. That's impossible. Yeah, it is impossible. It's impossible for you to do that. But it was not impossible for Christ. He lived a perfect life and died the death that you deserve to die. And so I stand before you guys today An imperfect man, but in in God's sight, uh, perfect because of what Jesus did for me. And so Jesus has purchased forgiveness of sins, and it can be yours if you but turn from your sin, you put your hope and your trust in Christ. So don't be stiff-necked, and don't resist the Holy Spirit. Uh, Don't miss this. Don't be like these men who rejected Christ. And if that's the case, the eternal God will dwell with you. So, let's pray. Uh, Father, we come before you in the name of your son, Jesus. We're grateful for him, our Lord and Savior who went before us, who uh, took on our sin, and sacrificed his own life before you so that we could be forgiven of our sins. And instead of, a, instead of looking forward to wrath from God, we now look forward to love and acceptance and eternity in heaven with you. And, and Lord, that eternal life that you have purchased for us, it's already beginning. It's already started here today in this life, and we're grateful. Help us to be grateful for that. Help us to point each other to Christ as a community. Help us to be in the word, and uh, Lord, we love you. Amen.